Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Barry, aka the Pale Horse on Twitter. He is a Marxist Leninist and resides in southeastern Pennsylvania. Barry describes himself as an open advocate for revolution and sympathizes with the communist cause. Barry is a healthcare activist, a dissident, and an outspoken critic of American foreign policy and the political system. He's involved in community outreach and activism and has been a guest speaker in many political events in and around southeastern Pennsylvania. Barry has been politically active since at least 2015 when he was radicalized and has campaigned for Bernie Sanders and advocated for progressive reform. Barry wants to use his political platform to destroy capitalism. Barry is very passionate about core issues like climate crisis, imperialism, the problems with propaganda, and political corruption. So, without further ado, let's get rolling. MC squared. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So you describe yourself as an angry machinist and you, you reside in Southeastern Pennsylvania, my old stomping grounds, but Barry pale horse pale. Why are you so angry? I, uh, uh, how many hours do we have? <laughs> we got to um, go two hours, the max here. So we got, we got to keep to two hours. All right, so let's start from the top. We are living in a society that is crumbling, an empire that is falling apart. Uh, We are, as the majority of individuals within the United States and a lot of places across the globe, uh, a highly oppressed working class that needs to organize itself and take its power back. That's, uh, I would say that that's the number one thing on my mind every day. So I'm big into philosophy and we talked a little bit earlier too. You are as well. Um, David Hume said, famous philosopher, that power resides within the governed. You had mentioned, uh, about taking the power back. I agree with you. How, how do we take back that power that's rightfully ours as a working, as a working class movement and as a bottom up populist revolution how can that occur and how can we how can we take what's rightfully ours back so currently we are living in a society that is that has a highly organized governing class uh that governing class is the capitalist class they are the owners of the private property they are the dictators of law they are the dictators of how our lives happen uh from top to bottom uh the very small choices that we have as individuals are 
dictated daily by our material reality. And we, we had spoken shortly before about material reality and, and the things that exist within our purview. So the way that we need to organize is there is the capitalist ruling class that currently exists. It's your, um, and this may come as a surprise to a lot of people, but it is not the government. It's not the government. The government is a pawn to corporate interests. BlackRock, Vanguard, uh, these large financial institutions, and this was a warning from Vladimir Lenin in the State and Revolution of how a democratic republic could be used as an absolute perfect tool to integrate capitalism into governance. And here we are, absolutely correct. It's absolutely correct. From how many wars that we're currently taking part in or proxy wars that we're trying to establish. And then there's the clandestine wars that we're not even aware of, too, that are going on right now that we might not find out for another 30 years because of classified records, and that's when they're typically released, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's 100% right. We're, we are, we're fighting battles, and when I say we, I, I mean in general the working class. We are fighting battles that we have no interest in. We're killing people for reasons that we'll never know we can figure it out through investigation we can try to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who made the decisions to do these things but but what those powerful people are doing is mostly a mystery to us and they want to keep it that way yes yes uh, but <laughs> once you understand the material analysis of of our society and how things operate within our system, it becomes rather clear that it's all grasps for power. And and within our society and within the global community, power is derived from dollars, economic power. So you had mentioned that you're a Marxist, and we'll kind of get to this. I am not. I'm an anarchist. But what appeals to me is power and power systems. That's what I love to read about. That's what I love to talk about. And now you're getting into areas that that really interests me. Where does power reside in our society? So I'd like to also compare and contrast uh, the Soviet Union. I don't know as much about the modern governance and ruling class in China, but I'm very critical as an anarchist of all governments. So, um, yeah, in, in terms of the, the Soviet Union, though, and, and its uh, and its function and how it was organized and designed, and I've done some research on this um, recently, I think some of the Marxist terminology um, was and, and writings were taken literally. He had talked about the dictatorship of the proletarian, but Lenin and Stalin were literally dictators when I think that he was talking about it in a figurative sense, a society led and run by the working class and not one led by the commissar class of powerful autocrats and and uh, the vanguard party and that sort of thing where orders were top down, just like in a capitalist democracy where orders are top down from, you know, corporate executives and, and uh, management 
uh, within those corporations or the government saying, you know, do this or we're going to use force to stop you if, you if you don't, you know. So I think that there's, to me, a lot of similarities between the current structure and, and governing class, ruling class, whatever, um, if you want to use some Marxist terminology, the proletarian, you know. Uh, I think there's some similarities between uh, the United States um, right now in practice and how the power power systems in society are constructed and um, in the Soviet Union where you didn't have this capitalist ownership class but instead you just had an all-powerful vanguard party of commissars and uh, powerful um, bureaucrats. So I think really the societies are similar it's just where power was coming from was just a little bit different like and, and capitalism, the ownership class of billionaires and shareholders and real estate moguls and all that stuff, they own the government and, and buy, <laughs> and the politicians are bought and paid for by, by the people with those, you know, those massive amounts of wealth, you know. But in, in, in the Soviet Union, in communism in practice, you didn't have that extra step. It just came directly from, you know, a ruling party, if you will. So... Let me back up a little bit here to this concept that the Soviet Union, Lenin, Stalin were dictators. Um, no. Um, <laughs> so Lenin, being the main organizer of the Bolsheviks during the time of the Russian Revolution and beforehand, was a very popular um, – what's the word? antagonist he was a he was very hands-on in organizing people and getting things into position including the vanguard party he and, became and he very scared popular. people right i mean he was he was um he was i guess uh uh what did, yeah he, he had to go to europe or he had to go to london i guess right because he scared the ruling class in russia he, he had to take yes. some time away because he was a he was he was a uh, figure of interest because he was riling up you know the he was riling up the ruling class he was riling up the you know the the peasants with their pitchforks and stuff wasn't he right yeah he was exiled for a while exiled that's and, the word I was looking for exiled thank you <laughs> and uh, once he came back and things really started to kick off uh, obviously clearly he was very popular because he, his writings were the ones that were leading the pathway uh, it was what. It was what the proletarians, the, the working class, the, the poor, the farmers, because Russia at that point was a was very much an agrarian peasantry under the czarist um, governance. It was, in essence, riling up the peasants and the serfs to take over everything that had been kept from them. So Lenin became this figurehead but wasn't really a dictator. The way the, the way the government was organized was through the Soviets. So, and each individual Soviet had, a, had its own governing uh, council or commission, commissar, if you will, where the individual interests of the people were brought to the attention of the council. Things were decided based off of democratic means. And then those Ideas and agreements were taken to the larger council of all of the Soviets, where it was discussed, which is which is where dialectical materialism comes into play. Because if you have a, a Soviet 
like like Ukraine, for example, the Holodomor. People love to bring up the Holodomor as this great famine that the communists uh, committed against the Ukrainian people, and it's why people like Stefan Bandera had to step up as a nationalist and join the Nazis to fight back the communists. No, that's, that's not what happened. There was some issues with um, the, the step forward in organization of trying to uh, mass farm because you had individual property owners with their individual properties who were growing specific things. There are all kinds of issues trying to get stuff sorted out. So they're on top of the lack of organization in the very beginning mixed with a drought that lasted for a year and a half, massive amounts of unplowed grain and fields that were left sallow and individual property owners who refused to take part in this, in the, this new organization of things, the, the Kulaks, they, uh, they wound up burning their own crops, killing all of their own livestock, hoarding away what they could for themselves, and then booking it out of the way. Um, and that led to a, a really awful famine that did kill a lot of people. And there's, this was 1932, 1933, and there were... Uh, once they opened up the Soviet archives in the 1990s, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there were thousands and thousands of documents talking about how they were going to solve this problem. And eventually they did. And it led to one of the greatest advances in caloric intake and farm production, grain production. Um, in essence, the... The Soviet Union took this agrarian peasantry and took it to space in less than 50 years. You can't say the same thing about the United States. You can't say the same thing about any country that's ever been organized in any other way. It's the fastest method because it tackles the problems that come to the surface immediately. And what, how it does it is by putting the question on the table in front of everybody. Because these are the problems that people face on a daily basis. For instance, I'm a diabetic. I need insulin to survive. If I go to my elected official right now, my, my representative in the House of Representatives, and I tell them that I need insulin to survive. I can't afford it. It's too expensive. They're charging too much for it. This is something that I literally, if I do not have, I will die. So we need to do something to fix that. In so, our comp it, No, I, I want to maybe table the discussion a little bit on the Soviet Union. Maybe we can come back to it. I think you brought up healthcare, which is I'd like to switch gears a little bit. But one thing I would like to say uh, just about the Soviet Union, I think in in, in theory, and uh, I think you know, with the revolution, that was that was all the ideals that it was organized around. But I think over time, those democratic fetters of the the Soviet Union were broken down, and I think it was more 
of a, not a totalitarian society, but it was pretty bad, I think, under Stalin with the gulags, the secret police. I think there's a lot of similarities between um, post-World War II Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. Um, so I don't want to live in that kind of oh. society. I think there were similarities. Uh, I think there was a lot of similarities. I think that there was a lot of good things that were done. I mean, Hitler did a lot of good things in Germany, too. So I think that there is definitely some some benefits, I guess, of a centralized power, you know, within within society. But I oppose it in principle. I want a decentralized society. I don't want a government run like the Soviet Union. I definitely don't want a government run like Nazi Germany. And ideally, uh, in the long run, that's my long view for society, I want the nation state to dissolve. I want centralized power to dissolve. So I'll get back to the Soviet Union and what I think of it. Maybe... You know, pre-1918, you know, there was some socialist and democratic organ, organ, uh, organizations, you know, worker-run uh, federations and stuff in the Soviet Union. But I think over time, those were all deconstructed by the ruling class, by the vanguard party. So in my opinion, uh, looking at the Soviet Union from maybe 19, 1918 to when it finally collapsed, I don't think it was socialist, nor do I think it was democratic. And I actually think, and I'm going to have to agree with Chomsky on this one, I think the collapse of the Soviet Union was a victory for democracy and socialism because um, obviously we can talk about the United States and I like to transition to the United States since we know that system the best. I also don't think the United States is a functioning democracy right now. In fact, Princeton University even said it's an oligarchy. I think back in 2014, it's gotten worse since then. But in my view of the Soviet Union, there is no doubt some positives to be, to be gained from it. But a lot of negatives. And I don't think the workers were all that much better off after the revolution. I think the people that were much better off and the people that won was the, the vanguard party and the commissar class. And I don't think it's all that much different. It was basically a, a small group of people with concentrated power and wealth in society, much like the United States here. But those aren't government bureaucrats. Those are capitalists and ownership class. So I think, again, I see a lot of similarities. And I would definitely not call the United States a functioning democracy, nor would I call it socialist either. Oh... Oh, boy. I know you're waving your communist flag. I'm an anarchist. I like to rile feathers here a little bit. I like to rile people up. So bring it to me. Give it to me, Barry. So let's touch on number one. Is Stalin a dictator? Yes. Do dictators try to quit? I think dictators think they're – they always use morality. They always say that they're doing what they think is best for the people. That's no matter what. You know, all all power systems use morality and and rhetoric and propaganda to try to convince the populace that they're doing them a favor. So – but I I, I, I don't – I think it's pretty well documented that both Stalin and Lenin were dictators. Uh, And I don't think you're going to convince me here otherwise. But you can argue your point for sure if you'd like. Do dictators – Quit. Do they quit? No, they almost never give away, give up power until they die, for the most part, or unless there's some sort of bottom-up revolution that takes them out of power, which is what I like. I guess there could be a right-wing revolution, too, but I'm for a revolution that's bottom-up and a popular, you know, type of, of the popular kind, not of the right-wing coup kind, not of the violent kind. I'm a, I'm a non-violent uh, revolutionary. So what if I told you that Joseph Stalin uh, submitted his resignation to the Communist Party four times. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I didn't. This, this is new information to me, Barry. 
Yeah, he he submitted a resignation letter as the party head and head of state four times. And that was during the period where he was called the worst dictator. He submitted his resignation and he was denied by the councils below him. They told him that they needed him in the position that he was in. And that was a direct cry from the people below because the people below are the ones who control the councils which then did make the decisions that control his position of power. Do you think the Soviet Union was dem- democratic? I do, absolutely. The same way I think Cuba's democratic, the same way I think China's democratic, the same way I think Vietnam is democratic. Having a singular party does not mean that it's not democratic. What a singular party does is it forces the individuals who are going to run for a selected office to actually run on the ideas that they are willing and able to put forward. It forces them to not hide behind a party structure and the promises of other people. It is what they will be able to provide individually as a member of the system. That's. Yeah, I, I oppose political parties in principle as an anarchist. I'm not, I'm not one for political parties. I, I like, I, I keep it strictly to ideas. I think that, Political problem. Political parties present a, a big problem. Uh, partisanship and all kinds of things. I think there's basically one functioning party in the United States, and that's basically moderate Republicans. We have the right wing Republicans, and then we have the moderate Republicans, the center, you know, in the Democratic and and Republican parties, essentially functioning as a one party state. You know, whether it's Mitt Romney or Joe Biden, that's basically the, the Washington consensus. That's we're a one party state. There's some fringe elements in the Democratic Party to the left. Maybe Bernie Sanders, for example. And then there's some fringe elements to the right. Maybe Ron DeSantis, for example. I, I don't think either of them are going to break through and, and get power. I think it's most of the time it seems like it's the centrist people. Trump was a bit of a wild card. I, I, I really don't think his political ideologies are all that complex. He was kind of a demagogue and his main political philosophy is improving his personal wealth and power. It was all about me. The Trump politics was me, 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 you know, so I think he's kind of hard to, I think he's kind of hard to tie down because I think he would say and do anything if it meant uh, financial gain or uh, increasing his political power. I can a hundred percent agree with that. And that is a symptom of a capitalist society. That is, oh, you say we have one party. And that party so. is Function, functioning. It, it, it appears that we might have two superficially. If you if you look at the media a little bit, they might present it as there's two different views. But I think from a functioning standpoint, basically one party, moderate Republicans. I will only disagree in saying that uh, the business we party, have... we have one party, the business party in the United States. And basically they the, the agenda changes a little bit based on, you know, what political party is, fun- what what corporation is funding which political party? You know what exactly. I mean? Like, exactly. Obviously, it seems Black like Rock oil versus Vanguard. Yeah, the financial the financial elites seem to fund the Democratic Party, and big oil seems to fund the Republicans. And maybe there's a little bit of difference, <laughs> you know, uh, with some other elements of the, of the society. But it seems like you know, capital in the banking financial system is <laughs> most powerful. When you had mentioned about BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street, all with like twenty trillion dollars in assets under control that's 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 very big uh concentration of wealth and power and influence in society they control everything and they're diversified they're in every facet of our lives 
making every decision for us in secret because these corporations are unaccountable private tyrannies. They are by no means democratic in any sense of the word. They are top-down no, hierarchies. And the worst, the worst aspect is that they use it. <laughs> they let us put the chain on ourselves. All they under gave, the guise of free market, uh, you know, free markets and business, and you know, uh, you know, freedom or, <laughs> or whatever, whatever propaganda. But these, these, is there, is there, is there a freedom with these financial institutions? They're run by no. the elites that are that have uh, insane concentrations of wealth and power, and the public, uh, like the Princeton study I quoted earlier, I think eighty percent of the public, seventy to eighty percent of the public, has virtually no say and political decision-making in the United States. So that's no longer functioning democracy. It's an oligarchy. Or if you want to get deeper into some political terminology, a plutocracy or kleptocracy, you know. Um, And again, they all kind of mean the same thing. A government for the rich by the rich. And that all ties back to capitalism. 100%. It's It's always about the private ownership of private property, the means of production, uh, so look, the, the cool thing about our current world uh, is that we have some tools at our disposal so that we can find out who these people are. So BlackRock, Vanguard, and this is, <laughs> I did this the other day, and I would urge everybody to do it. Just just pull up your, your uh, preferred search engine and type in top 10 defense contractors. And when you do that, write down the names of the top 10 defense contractors, search them up and and put in behind the name of the company, top shareholders. And when you do that, you will find that there is consistently about 15 to 20 different companies that all, all hold the controlling share amounts of all of these companies. So... In essence, that is your your ruling class. That's them. The government has nothing to do with it because when the government needs money, when the individuals who are in government need money, they have to go get loans. And when they go to get loans, they go to these financial institutions. And when they go to the financial institutions to get money for whatever they need, including their own elections, they are then beholden to those financial institutions to do as they request. So everything ties back to these same financial. The, the politicians are bought and paid for. They need they need the capital to run their campaigns, and when they get office get in office, the people that finance those campaigns are handsomely rewarded with power and deals and crony capitalism and you know what I mean shady shady business organizations. Um, I think Trump and the Biden administrations both have really shady business dealings, uh, and that's why I oppose political parties in principle, and I don't think um, it would be that much different if the Greens got in uh, in power. I, th- I I love the Greens. I think they have a lot of great views, and I definitely align with their platform much more than the Democratic platform or the Republican platform. But I think if they had more power and influence and financial backing, I think that political party and their platform would be corrupted just as easily as the Democratic Party and the Republican Party is now. And that is the curse of capitalism is that no matter what you attempt to do until you rid the world of the influence of political of capital in general there's no escape what's capitalism let's define it what is capitalism there's a lot of rhetoric about it what is it what is it in principle in theory 
what, what is it all encompassing? What does it mean? So the ideal of capitalism is a branch off of uh, feudalism. So I agree. Feudal- I don't think it's much different. I 100% agree with you. Keep going. I love it. It is It is 100% almost exactly the same as, as feudalism. Except- we don't have kings and queens. We have corporate executives now. Exactly. And those corporate executives are the owners of the means of production, the material components. They are the top down of who does what, when, and where. But over time, we've seen that the, most of those roles get delegated to other jobs as profit increases. That way, the, the top portions, the owners themselves, don't actually have to do any of the work. They just reap the benefits off of it. They are, in essence, simply the holder of the purse. They, they are the one that holds the money bag, and that's all that they're doing. I mean, a, a corporate CEO, a chief executive officer, you would think that they're doing, you know, 55 to 60 hours of work in a single day for how important that they, they make themselves seem and for the type of wages that they get. Yeah, but, 300 plus times the normal uh, the normal salary of uh, the average worker. Uh, I, I looked up some Mondragon stuff. I'm big into the co-ops. Uh, their average ratio. Yeah, me too. I love co-ops. I love – I want – Again, if you if you want to talk about the structure of work and how I think society should be organized, um, I think owner you know those that work in the factories should own them. Those that work in the machine shops, like you, Barry, should own them. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that uh, Mondragon. First off, you know that's it's not perfect and it's managed. You know, and it's still in the capitalist system. It's integrated in the capitalist system. So Mondragon's by no means perfect, but I do believe in some of your Marxist rhetoric of. Workers taking over the means of production. I do believe in that, you know. And um, mm-hmm. Mondragon, I think it's like five to one. The the highest paid employee can't make more than five times the lowest paid employee. Great. Let's do that. We need wage ceilings for sure. We need a much higher minimum yeah. wage. At this point, probably $25 an hour. I mean, you could <laughs> whatever, come up with any number. I'm not going to disagree with it. You want it to be 50? Fine. 50. I have no power or influence. But it's <laughs> got to be a lot higher than 725. I'll tell you that. Um, but yeah, that five to one ratio, I, I dig that. I think profits sh- should be, I don't think we necessarily need a pro- uh, society organized around profits and greed and capitalism. So I don't th- necessarily think, I think money and exchange, medium of exchange is probably necessary, no matter the society. But I think um, everything shouldn't be a commodity. I think that there's some things, you know, we should do um, that doesn't necessarily mean need financial uh, influence. You know, I think, for example, healthcare should definitely be a human right, and I think the public, uh, the, the public in a democratic society, I think public health care should be offered, not just Medicare for all, not just insurance, but I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, government-owned health care facilities where, um, you know, doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals are employed by the local community, and it's organized and democratically run, you know, and, and not some uh, for-profit motive, you know, so, but I also like yeah. um, with Mondragon, uh, you vote on the managers. So not perfect, but it's not where you get in as a manager, you make all the decisions that's top down, but instead at Mondragon, you vote on that. And I think I kind of want to go to neoliberalism and just highlight some things with neoliberalism, which is not new, nor is it liberal. And that's some of the Reagan doctrine, <laughs> you know, that accelerated uh, neoliberalism and deregulation of the financial system. Basically what the neoliberals want is a highly powerful, repressive state, you know, with military and police and jails and all that sort of thing. But they want deregulated business. Um, you know, they want no environmental 
uh, rules. They want to get rid of organizations like OSHA, and they want to get rid of organizations that keep corporations in check. They basically want, and it's almost like a libertarian, the, the American sense of the libertarian word, some sort of capitalist dystopian society where corporations run every facet of our lives, and maybe we have a government with police and military, or maybe we just have mercenaries and private security forces in the rich and powerful, if you can afford them, you know, that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, I think that, and they also want, so what they also want, it's kind of class warfare. It's, it's socialism. When the banks fail and corporations fail, they want the public to bail them out. But when people want things like healthcare and education and affordable insulin, you're on your own. It's rugged free market. I'm sorry. We can't help you. There's not enough money for it. There's always money for wars and jails and prisons and police, but never enough money to go around for healthcare, for food, for, for, for shelter. I mean, there's more vacant homes in America than there are people without houses. We, there's not a problem. There's not a homelessness problem in the United States. There's a lack of will. We could fix it over a long weekend if some people put in some hard work and every city across the country it could be fixed in a weekend uh and we obviously have the dollars for it uh, I, just posted, I just posted the other day that the new military budget just went through 882 billion dollars is enough money and this is this is a rough guesstimate of how many uh people are houseless in the united states right now it's about six hundred and fifty thousand, if not more probably more probably yeah but, tough to track down for sure but if you take that $882 billion and you put it into 650,000 people, do you know how much money that is? That's a crap ton of money. I think you said, I think I saw your tweet, might have liked it or commented. I think everyone could afford a $1.4 million home, something like that. A $1.4 million home. <laughs> that's pretty can nice. Imagine that's how that's much... nicer than the house I got, that's for sure. Hey, that's 10 times the value of the home that I'm currently living in. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I could, so. I could, I, I could certainly use that little bump up, you know. What do we, what do down. we, what do we need a, a nearly trillion dollar military budget for? Are we being attacked? Do we have any enemies? I mean, one side of us is an ocean, the other side of us is an ocean. Canada's not invading, and neither is Mexico. What do we need a trillion dollar army for? Mm, that's an interesting question. That's an interesting question, and I know the answer. Uh oh, what's the answer? The answer is imperial interests. Uh huh. Imperialism. Yeah. We are yeah. an empire. We always have to grow. We always have to expand markets. We always have to expand capitalism. We mu- the economy must always grow no matter what. Which is funny because if it's a free market, then it doesn't need to grow. Of course they say it's the a free market, market. There's nothing about it that's free. There's absolutely nothing free about a free market. There is no such thing as a free market. Free markets don't exist. They don't exist. As long as, long as there is the private ownership of the means of production and private property. And when I say private property, this is where I get into it with libertarians. And I did this week when I was going back and forth with Spike Cohen, the former uh, libertarian presidential vice presidential candidate, um, talking about free markets. Oh, God. So, yeah, as an anarchist, I get in, get in it with everybody, from the neoliberals <laughs> to the libertarians to the communists to the Marxists. I ruffle everybody's feathers. <laughs> Bring it on, Anar Kitty. <laughs> so you had mentioned about libertarianism, and I think I'd like to sum up the libertarian beliefs if I could. Um, libertarians basically, I think, 
say that I got mine and screw everybody else, you know, at least that's the way I see it. I think it's a really simplistic um, way of looking at the world. There is, though, in fact, a rich history of libertarianism uh, with the Enlightenment and the philosophical studies that I've been on. Libertarianism used to mean, there's an American word for it, we can kind of go in and describe that, but libertarian <laughs> used to mean um, the anti-statist um, you know, opposed concentrations of power, state power, mostly there weren't corporations. This was pre-capitalism. Um, so they basically just opposed, um, the state. And over time, I think libertarian developed in socialist, a rich history, thanks to Marx with describing socialist thought. And I think that, um, the way I describe myself, like all, all anarchists are socialist, but not all socialists are anarchists. So I think, Anarchism and libertarianism mean similar things, except in America, where it's some sort of dystopian hypercapitalist reality, which it's not normal to classical libertarian thought. Basically, a socialist libertarian in, in the classical um, usage of the term, all these terms of uh, political discourse are propagandized. So they most of the time, the way they're used typically means the opposite, you know, of, of their classical meaning. So but that's just because, again, political discourse is very highly propagandized. But in general, there's two branches of socialist libertarian thought, and they kind of branched off. One is the anarchists, me, that oppose all concentrations of wealth and power and oppose a centralized state uh, and want a decentralized society organized around the local community or around the workplace. And that's why I identify myself as an anarcho-syndicalist. I want a highly organized society organized around the workplace, and I want that workplace to be democratically structured, and I want them to, there to be loose federations of worker organized, um, you know, workplaces and whatnot around the world, federation of organized, uh, workplaces in an international system and a system without, um, borders, arbitrary borders or government. And one with, uh, where hopefully the nation state dissolves and there's no need for standing armies. I don't think that's the possibility in my lifetime, um, but I hope to see that someday for future generations. What libertarianism means in America is, kind of alluded to it earlier, maybe private bridges, private schools. You can get health care if you can afford it. Um, there's very little regulations. There's no human rights. Whatever corporations give us is, is all, whatever, and whatever you can earn on the labor market is what, what you can get. Everything is commoditized. That's, that's a reality that nobody should want to live in. And the only thing that you can do uh, to, to save yourself is maybe you can sue these corporations um, but you know how that would go. They own the courts. I mean, the court system in the United States is bought and paid for. There's two courts of law in the U.S., one for the rich and powerful and one for everybody else. I had met, made this argument on another podcast, but let's, these corporations are polluting everything. Forever, forever chemicals are everywhere. They pollute towns drinking water. Um, and I just made this argument that what, what if um, a minority in Alabama would pollute uh, the drinking water of some town there and maybe some people would die from it, from the poisoning? Um, what would happen to that minority? And I, I like I said, I, I don't want to talk too much about hypotheticals here, but I think they'd get the death penalty. But when corporations Absolutely. do it, they get a slap on the wrist, maybe a fine. And they could even look at it as a business expense because obeying in, uh, environmental law is expensive sometimes. So they can pay this small fine, get a slap on the wrist, and then it's back to business as usual. I mean, look no farther than the railroads right now. With what happened in East Palestine, uh, what, what's happened actually not too far away from here in, uh, uh, what the hell was that? Um, 
there was another um, several of them. It was on the yeah. public consciousness, so the media had to start reporting these stories. But there's been several railroad incidents, and that's back to that libertarian or that free market, where you know free market for for thee, but not for me. You know, and they want re- uh, deregulated railroads, and that's a great thing, right? It's great for business. No, of course not. It's terrible for the people, the communities, the environment. It's dangerous, uh, and uh, yeah, it could cause that's serious always- harm. That's always the drawback to when you when you're talking about uh, the United States brand of libertarianism, especially the libertarian party within the United States, is this idea of free markets. There is no with without having common ownership of the means of production and the natural resources uh, of uh, any given nation. There is no free market. There can't be. Because somebody is always going to own more than than somebody else, and they're going to leverage that power against them to get what they want done. To get it's, more power and to get more wealth. You know, right. that's what's been happening. Like like the billionaires, I don't know when the first billionaire was made, maybe around the time of An- Andrew Carnegie and uh um what's the what was the oil tycoon, the Rockefellers. I don't know if that's the first yeah. ones, but and ever ever since then they've only been amassing more wealth and power. And uh, and yet the United in the United States the minimum wage is still seven dollars and twenty five cents per hour. How are how are we okay with this type of society? I mean, I know people like you aren't, but how aren't other people more awoke to what's going on around them? You know, and I think that's a function of thought control and the propaganda system that's uh, deluged the the public, and and they do that through the mainstream media, which are corporations owned by, in some instances, larger corporations. Like the New York Times, I think at one point was part of um, Westinghouse, which is a defense contractor. Isn't it, isn't it, is it a coincidence that New York Times always seems to support the U.S. war agenda abroad in their imperialistic, uh, uh, you know, uh, adventures and whatnot? There's a bit of a conflict of interest, right, when the, the, the media is controlled by a defense contractor, don't you think? That seems a little odd, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 I don't know if that's the case anymore, but it used to be. Uh, you know, all these corporations like um, GE and all that, all these giant corporations, they have a number of umbrellas. I saw the food industry, I think it's controlled by a handful of companies, you know, Nestle, Coca-Cola, just mm-hmm. giant corporations, and there's just you know brands that fall under the you know the the larger conglomerate umbrella. Oh, and there you know, uh, no more better evidence than what was printed in one of the papers. I forget what, which one it was, but they were saying that the uh, so much groundwater had been pumped that the Earth had been thrown off of its normal tilt and was going to wobble a little more in a certain direction because of the displacement of groundwater. And they're saying it's because people are drinking bottled water and all that. Well, who's doing that? What's the biggest supplier of bottled water in the entire country? Coca-Cola is the biggest polluter in the world. I think billions uh, and billions and billions of plastic bottles that pollute our oceans and environment every single year from from Coca-Cola. Of course, there's other companies too. Technically, the United States military is the number one polluter on planet Earth. I guess the number one corporate polluter. Yeah, you're right there. I've seen that too. The number one corporate polluter is Coca-Cola. Plastic bottles are everywhere. It's number one by a number of environmental uh, news sources and whatnot. But yeah, in in terms of any polluting force, U.S. military is the top of the list. No doubt about that. And Nestle 
Nestle owns the rights to so much freaking groundwater in the United States. It's ridiculous. And they're one of the largest producers of bottled water. And we're the ones to blame? If you can't drink the water in your own town, what are you going to do? You have to buy bottled water. You have to get it from somewhere. And you can't get it from a natural spring if it's contaminated with PFAS and lead and uh beryllium and all kinds of freaking crap that's been dumped all over the place by these corporations because there's no there's no more regulation the regulation's been stripped away or or in essence they bought the regulation being stripped away because it made business easier for them hey thanks for using freaking crap i want to mc squared and necessary illusions we want to keep our clean (laughs) rating here If you want to let one fly, trying, I'll allow it. Hey, if you want to let, I let one fly, I'll... so hard. No, I'll, I'll I'll keep it as clean as I possibly can. I don't want you to have to put it up an explicit thing just for me. Yeah, this is a, um, this is a, this is a this is a family show here on Necessary Illusions, okay, Barry? <laughs> yeah, but if you follow, but if you follow me on Twitter, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna hear it. <laughs> so I'll link you on this I, for sure. I appreciate the discussion. Um, you talked about a little bit common ownership. I, I love that. I mean, why are these corporations? Why do they get the? Why do they get the rights to groundwater? Why do they get these oil rights? So I think that first off, if we want to save the environment, which I think you want to do, I want to do, everyone on the left absolutely. wants to do, and the environment doesn't get a vote on these types of political matters. And you know who also doesn't get a vote? Future generations, are we going to be around, you know, human beings, I say, when I say, when I mean we, are we going to be around, you know, 100 years from now, three or four generations from now? I know those people don't get to vote, but if we don't start acting now, there, there's no future for those people. There's no future for the planet. There's no future, future for uh, common life here, whether it's animals, biological life, uh, trees, whatever. Um, we're, we're destroying the planet. We are a virus. I, I, I try to be optimistic. I don't want to be misanthropic. Uh, optimism, optimism, or some pessimism of, uh, <laughs> pessimism, I always mess this up, pessimism of intellect, but optimism of will. It's, it's hard to stay hopeful, it's hard to stay motivated, but I try to. I, I, I know that there can be a better world uh, than the current one we're in, you know, and I think there's a lot of ways to improve uh, within and outside the system. And I think part of what I'm trying to do here is an independent media program is try to get some ideas that aren't presented by the mainstream corporate media, by the agenda setting media. You know what, that, that this all branches back this uh, whole optimism versus pessimism thing. There's something that we said prior to when you started recording today, uh, we had a small conversation. Uh, when we talk about utopianism and idealism versus material reality. And, I, I I am more of a materialist. I, in, so let's, in go aspects... with it. let's switch gears. Let's go. To, let's go to our philosophical discussion. I've been wanting to get to this anyway. So let's go. <laughs> tell me. Tell me about the dialectic materialism. I'm not a Marxist. You are. I've read some of it. Tell me about it. So dialectic materialism is the. It's it's a, basically a, a concept of argument. So, and I also said this earlier. Any discussion is technically an argument. A point is brought up, there is discussion about the point, and then you move forward, whether a conclusion is reached or not. But in dialectical materialism, what we do is we bring we bring an idea or a question or a problem to the surface. We offer two different solutions, or as many different solutions as are able to present themselves. Right, there might be more than and, two sometimes, right? Right, and then we discuss them. 
we 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 play them out we think about them systemically and how they affect other things and that's a lot of what doesn't happen in today's society we, we uh the capitalist interests have a tendency to just think about how it affects their own and that's also where the libertarian ideology falls apart is because it's all it's always about the self self-interest i got system. mine screw everybody else and sometimes, especially when it comes to things like uh, the liberation of oppressed people and uh, the liberation of minorities in, in these systems, uh, they, tend to, they tend to be cast to the side as a, it's not important because it's not the majority. But in dialectic materialism, we have to take that into consideration. We have to say, okay, so this could hurt these people or this group. So that has to play a part in our decision as to how we move forward. We don't, do we want to hurt them? No, because we're decent human beings and, and nobody wants to hurt somebody on purpose out of just a, a, some moral guideline of a functioning society. That, that's so, why the leaders, the leaders and, and people in power, they know this because when we're bombing countries around the world trying to advance an imperialism agenda, imperialistic agenda, um, there's always these sophisticated, complex uh, reasons for it. Like, we're spreading democracy. We're protecting these people. <laughs> you know, they, they're not just saying, hey, we're going to bomb. We're gonna, the, the leaders of this country aren't just saying, hey, we're going to bomb Iraq. We're going to take their oil rights. And then we're going to go to Syria. We're going to do the same thing. You know, they're saying, oh, we, you know, there's... We're, we're trying to spread democracy. These people can't help themselves. We're trying to help them help themselves. You know, we're, they're always coming up with these sophisticated reasons for why we're doing it. And that's, beca that's, that's because I believe pe all people are moral, or at least most people are moral. We have we have values and ethics. Uh, if it was if it was just about power, they would just tell us exactly what they're doing. But it's not. You know, we we in, in terms of politics. Um, you know, they, they want us to believe and we're so propagandized that for every reason, you know, America's a city on a hill and we're doing it for morality and we're unique in history. We're not like every other country in the world that came before us that, you know, only, only uh, is about power and wealth and self-interest. We're trying to do good things like spread democracy. And uh, that's why thought control in democratic societies is so powerful. People are just so propagandized to it. And it's obviously lies and, and baloney. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to do is try to see through those lies and that, that misinformation and that propaganda to get to the truth. That's that's kind of what I want to do here. Mm -hmm. And the, and the truth, uh, the truth is often found in our material reality. You, you know, we can talk all we want to about how we want to help the homeless. We want to help the poor in this neoliberal society that we're currently living under, under capitalist control, which is not <laughs> new and not liberal. I'd like to just. You know, I know yeah. they call it, this is propaganda at its finest. It's not new, nor is it liberal. The, the, the people in the Enlightenment did not talk about anything that resembles the current society we're in when they were de defining the classical theories of liberalism. It has nothing to do with it. You know, this is class warfare at its finest. Yeah. Free market for the rich and power, I'm sorry, free market capitalism for poor people and socialism for the rich and powerful. That's, the, that's what I would describe neoliberalism as. And and it is the idea that um, the, the neoliberal ideology likes to say that all problems can be solved by that open free market, right? And that if they're going to invest in uh, 
fixing problems, then they're going to rely on the private sector to do so. And look no further than uh, Joe Biden's latest uh, initiative on climate change. Um, this just came out in the news the other day. Uh, they were talking about ways they're going to help the working people of the United States as climate gets worse, temperatures rise uh, by putting out uh, alerts about how hot it is. But that doesn't help somebody who has to go to work. If you have to be there, it's not going to stop you from having to be there. Tax incentives for getting uh, new, more energy efficient devices which is great if you can afford them, but with a minimum wage at seventy at seven twenty five an hour, there's no way. You can't even afford a home, let alone the appliances to get these tax credits. And then the other, <laughs> the third one, and this one, uh, this this quite literally made me laugh and cry at the same time. I feel that way all the uh, time. Sometimes I just laugh because, <laughs> but maybe it'd be more appropriate to cry. Yeah, I'm with you on that, definitely. <laughs> but offering tax incentives and pro and building programs to paint roofs white. Uh, number one, is it is it smart to paint your roof white? I don't know. I hadn't, I hadn't heard this one. Yeah, this is news to me. So go with it. I, I'm, this is all news so, to me on this one. So yes, it is smart to paint your roof your roof white. Um, it reflects a lot of the light. It helps keep it cooler, uh, but that reflects it right back out to the atmosphere, which is currently under a, a, a semi-greenhouse effect situation. So that, that heat is just being reflected. It's not sending it anywhere else, but right back out into the atmosphere where it's going to bounce right back again anyway, number one. And number two, um, paint is a fossil fuel product. The contractors that would be used to paint the roofs white uh, are all going to use fossil fuel means to do so. They're trucks, uh, cherry pickers, lifts, cranes, <laughs> yeah. yeah, all this that is, this shit. Is, this is the dialectic stuff. Whoa, whoa, what'd you just say there? No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. But the, <laughs> this, is, this is the dialectical argument that Marx had talked about. I mean, this isn't, you're uh -huh. getting into your point. You're getting deep into it. You know, you're getting to the seeds of how we might stop this environmental crisis and it's not just by painting roofs white you know what i mean right and that, that this is a hundred percent a dialectical materialist argument is that like i said the all of the things that they're talking about to solve these problems are all tied directly to the failures of the system as it currently is and the system itself is the reason why the situation has gotten so bad in the first place so the outcome of the argument no matter how you try to phrase it, no matter how you try to break it down, even to its most infinitesimal points, is always going to come back to, we have to eliminate the usage of fossil fuels, which are causing a massive increase in carbon dioxide and methane and et cetera into the atmosphere. We have to cut their usage. And that starts by getting rid of the companies who control that stuff. Well, first off, I wouldn't say necessarily get rid of them. I think public ownership and a public takeover of the fossil fuel industry, and then over time, we dissolve them. We take the things that will be valuable to us, and we use them. Hopefully, like they are, they're they're big and and big and invested in green technology. They know they have to diversify, and they know that there's we're we're, we're ticking down, you know, in terms of mm -hmm. environmental disaster. So they're well aware of it. So I don't think. 
that's I've been kind of changing my political philosophies slightly over time. Uh, I think when I first started out, I was radicalized. We gotta get rid of this, abolish this, abolish that. But now, over time, I think I'm subtly changing. I think we should publicly take over public ownership of these fossil fuel companies. Um, essentially, run them because people need people need energy. Like we have a fossil based, uh, we have a ga- we have an oil based economy, fossil economy that revolves around fossil fuels. We can't just get rid of these companies tomorrow. There's going to be people without means of transportation and energy and in the winters, you know, probably natural gas to heat. Um, so we need an entire, we need to, we need to terraform. I know these billionaire idiots talk about terraforming Mars. We kind of have to terraform the, the, the world and change the inner, change the economy and change how, um, the energy system is designed. I mean, we must switch over time to renewable energy and green technology. Some of those technologies aren't available just quite yet. Right. Uh, I, I, I 100% agree with you, including with the uh, overtaking of the fossil fuel companies and put into the common ownership of the people. I 100% agree with that. Um, it is something that we have to wean ourselves off of. We can't just simply stop tomorrow. People have cars. People have houses that run on natural gas. I mean, these things do still exist, and we do have to phase them out, and it's going to take time. However, one, like I said earlier, the largest polluter on the planet is the United States military. So how do we cut down on uh, our greenhouse gas emissions and pollution in, in, in general is to stop exploratory military missions. Uh, let's stop being imperialistic. Let's just stop shipping ammunition overseas to fight proxy wars. We're the biggest uh, munitions, uh, we're the biggest weapons trafficker uh, United States, I mean, uh, in world history, I think almost half of all weapons sales, munitions, bombs, guns, uh, involve the United States. So, and then another thing, uh, the, the farcical war on terror, uh, the United States is a terror state. We can, we, we are, uh, perpetrators of more violence of any other country in world history. So if we actually wanted to stop terrorism, we could first start by stopping, stop, <laughs> uh, uh, first start with, stopping our participation in terrorism, you know? And that would be huge if the United States stopped committing acts of terrorism abroad and outright acts of military aggression and imperialism. We'd live in a much safer world today. If we stopped that starting tomorrow, we'd cut down on it drastically, drastically. And if we and if we stopped arming other terrorist states, I look no further than Israel. Uh, Absolutely. That's our Saudi attack dog. That's our attack dog. Yep. And we use Israel to to, we- to test weapons on the Palestinians. Our, our defense contractors, <laughs> they have live targets, which is uh, a human rights scandal and should be talked about every single day because we're enabling Israel. But we use Israel as a, as a chess piece to maintain our oral rights in the Middle East. Yep. And Saudi Arabia, which yep. is, you know, just a, a whole nother classification. A travesty of, of human rights abuses yep. every single day there. Yeah. And enabled by the United States because we must ensure that the oil uh, and the money flows to the, to the West. We must we must ensure that because uh, that's that's how the economy is structured. It's an oil based economy and probably will be for at least another generation until uh, hopefully more renewable energies and green technologies can be scaled up. Right. And that, I mean, that all that all ties into the petrodollar and the worth of the dollar on the on the open market, which has been falling. Uh, exponentially, we got to quote. We got to quote open market, free market too. We we must always quote that, you know. 
<laughs> because it can't go oil oil can't go too high but also can't go too low it must stay within a certain range and they manipulate the cost of oil to stay within that certain range uh, they'll manipulate it for everybody else but it can go up 30 cents in the, you know overnight for your gallon of gas so you can get back forth to work so but, i want to uh, talk a little bit about this um capitalism has never been tried ever uh, economists know this it would fail almost immediately um, how capitalism structures, again, the public typically fits the cost of research and development, all, all the risk. So, for example, telecommunications, automation, the Internet, um, computers, all that was developed in the public sector for decades before people like Bill Gates uh, privatized it, monetized it, and used it to make a fortune. So, again, neoliberalism, it's uh, rugged free capitalism, rugged free market capitalism for the poor, but socialism for the rich and powerful. And if capitalism, if we lived in a capitalist society, every time the greedy bankers crashed the economy, uh, they wouldn't get bailed out. You know, and that's kind of built into the business model, too big to fail. They know that these risky investments that they're making could potentially crash the economy, but they do them because, number one, they, they, they could be potentially very profitable, but number two, they know if they crash the economy, the taxpayer is going to come and bail them out like we do every seven years or so since uh, the deregulation of the financial system. It's built into the structure of capitalism. That If we lived in a capitalist society, these institutions would be allowed to fail. The reason they aren't allowed to fail is because it's socialism for the rich and powerful and free market capitalism for every for everyone else. Uh, there's an emphasis so, on so individualism, you know. I'm going to I'm going to push back a little bit on the on the notion that it is socialism for the rich, because it technically it isn't socialism for the rich. It's class consciousness of the rich. That's the big difference. They know they are aware that if one of them goes down, the others are soon to follow. So they must continually prop each other up the same way that we as the working class, the disabled, the poor, the black, the Asian, all all my LGBTQIA uh, the queer community. Like yeah, I don't, try, I don't get into identity politics. I, I, wanted, I think a, a community where working class and people and poor people of all backgrounds come together for the common good. And we must stick, stick together. And this one-sided class war where you're absolutely right, the business community is highly class conscious and they are highly successful in class warfare against everyone else. Highly successful, and it's typically again one-sided. We must come together, people of all different backgrounds. But I think it must be a working-class-led movement of everyone, working-class and poor people. We must come together in, instead of fighting one another. And they use identity politics to divide us. And I, I'm a, I'm all for minorities and people of different sexual identities and all that stuff. I'm all for it. But I think what we need is to appeal to working-class voters around the world to go back to some Marxist technology a proletarian led revolution a bottom up revolution is what i'm looking for and i i'm 100% with you on that but the, how do you build that and that's the question the question is how do you build it and one of the starting blocks that we always seem to stumble on is that there has you know the people love to use the word organize 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 organization is not just getting together with your friends Organization is not just building a small community. We are fighting a massive enemy. We are fighting literally all of our natural resources used against us. And to do so, we have to have some sort of centralized ideological 
Uh-oh, uh-oh. Uh, you're starting to use words I don't like on here. Centralized, uh-oh. I'm starting to, starting to get a little... <laughs> so so let, me clar- let me clarify what I mean by that. And, and that's this. The United States is run, in essence, by the usage of its constitution, yes? I think, oh, the, oh, oh. I think the ruling class can manipulate the constitution to mean whatever they want it to to support some sort of agenda. And I had a podcast that kind of went into detail about why I view that, why I think that way. Right. Right. But, but in essence, that, that, that document. Is allegedly, so allegedly it's supposed to be some important document that we base our government around, I guess. I don't know if you, if you listen to but, people that think it's important, which I don't. <laughs> but in essence, it is the, still the law of the land. It, it is what is gone back to, to justify all the different actions that are taken. They will in theory, in theory, sure. In, in theory. practice, in, in practice, theory. I might have to disagree a little bit. <clears throat> so in essence, what, what we as, a, as individuals working together need to do is to draft up how things are going to run. Organization only works if there is a plan. There has to be some kind of plan. I agree you with can't... you. I agree with you, but there must be democratic participation. It can't be a plan strictly written up and decided by elites. It must be written by everyone, all of us. I I 100% agree, and that's where dialectical materialism comes into play. That is the entire point, is to bring the arguments for what is right and what is wrong to the table, sort it out, put it down on, on, set it in stone. Not necessarily in stone. Everything is in flux all the time. There is I agree. no. That's what Marx says, right? No definite. Everything's in yeah. constant motion. I, I maybe I am a Marxist after all. No, I like some of his stuff. I really do. Everything's in constant motion, and that's how capitalist structures. And I think he also talked about how it's a very resilient system. If you increase taxes on the rich. All they have to do is just increase, um, you know, the cost of goods. You know, there's if, yep. if you if you raise wages, what's going to happen? They'll probably increase the cost of goods. You know, if you increase envi- environmental restrictions, what are they going to do? Potentially transfer <laughs> jobs uh, overseas to maybe a country with yep. less strict um, environmental uh, standards. So it's a very it's a very uh, sophisticated system. It's very resilient. It's not going to be easy to topple or overthrow. And I know people have been trying for hundreds of years to, to, to little success, but that doesn't mean we can't stay hopeful. And I think that's the end game for all of us. You and I both agree on that, right? To topple capitalism yeah. and to try to put in its place a better system. And, and I think and it, and Chomsky has a book on this environmentalism, or I'm sorry, internationalism or extinction. Not glo- that doesn't mean global capitalist uh, society run by transnational corporations. It means a loosely organized international system of working class, democratically structured uh, institutions coming together uh, in order to combat climate change. If we don't come together internationally to combat climate change, we're all doomed, including you and I, future generations, Mm -hmm. the animals and biological life on this planet, and potentially the planet. I mean, nuclear war could, could... blow up the planet it, it could it could be unlivable for maybe things outside of you know viruses and uh microscopic biological organisms we we have the power and potential to blow up the planet and destroy it i believe it would only take 100 nukes uh to uh to destroy the planet and to make it unlivable um uh it would only take 100 nukes right uh the, the u.s has thousands of nukes russia has thousands of nukes we have the, we have the capabilities of blowing up planet Earth and making it unlivable a hundred times over. 
I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I got interrupted there. Um, <laughs> I was talking about environmentalism and internationalism and how we must come together uh, as a unified, uh, as, as, a, as a unified international class, hopefully of working, working class people to stop, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the destruction of the commons, if you will. And I yeah. said, uh, you know, that basically the, we have, I think it'd take like a hundred nukes to make the planet unlivable. The U S has thousands of nukes. Russia has thousands of nukes. We have the potential right now to blow up the planet a hundred times over. So the destructive uh, capabilities are within our means, but we need to come together for a more constructive way of saving the planet or we're all doomed us right now living on planet earth as well as future generations and all biological life forms. I 100% agree with you. It is a terrifying prospect to even think of. Um, so when we build this international, uh, loosely affiliated system, that's what I'm looking for. Um, loosely affiliated. Exactly. Yep. That's what I like. So when, when we talk about wanting to put the working class into the position of power, we do that through democratic means, the ability of the people to make the decisions and to have a voice. Um, that is the essence of, of what a communist state is supposed to be. A socialist supposed to economy. Be. Supposed to be. Supposed to be. And has been, has been successfully started in many nations. It is a process. Like all processes, it takes time. It takes time for these things to come to fruition. It, it not, like Just like anarchism couldn't start tomorrow. You can't just have anarchism tomorrow. Why not? There has to be. Come on, man. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> of course. I'm with you. Keep going. So there, there is a process to these things. Um, like I said to you earlier, I, I come from a very right-wing household. My my family was very, very Christian, very uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Everything's about what you do as the individual. It's very individualistic. It's very um, let's keep the, the foundations of things and how do they run. That's the conservative ideology. It's very reactionary because it lashes out against. Maintain, right, conservative that, ideology. Maintain the status quo. Maintain the certain systems uh, that are in place right now that structure our lives, right? That's what, how would you describe conservatism? Does that, does that define it pretty well? That's, that, that's pretty well spot on. And that, having moved from that ideology, after expanding my horizon and actually getting out and talking to people and having that, uh, (laughs) that famous libertarian moment of realizing that other people have feelings and they experience the world differently than you. Oh my God. It's like I popped mushrooms and found out that the entire world is completely different than everything I've always been told that like that, that, that cracks me up because in essence, it is kind of true. You, you, you venture out, you talk to people, you, you come to the realization that everything that you've been taught, everything that you believe is fundamentally flawed because all, all of these ideologies of the past have been built upon flawed systems from the beginning. Sometimes outright lies. A hundred percent outright, outright lies. Uh, that's where I started to get into liberalism. And I was very into the liberalism thing. I like classical liberalism. 
I, I consider myself a classical <coughs> liberal, you know, or even a classical mm. conservative, meaning like, you know, self-government, you know. So, I mean, I think these classical ideologies are pretty similar, classical liberalism and classical conservatism. Uh, but whatever we're seeing today, I don't think is either either of those two ideologies that were kind of um, – you know, talked about during the Enlightenment period, which is my favorite ph- philosophical period. I don't think the current power systems and the current government governing parties in the United States resemble either of those two ideologies. It's class warfare the way I see it. Government by the rich for the rich. Well, the beautiful thing about the Enlightenment is that it never stopped. And Hell yeah, consist- brother. Hell yeah. Yep. We're, <laughs> we're consistently all as a as a as a species moving forward and understanding of ourselves and the people around us and the world that we live in. And that is a fundamental thing that we need to continue to do. You have to question. You can't not question because if you don't question, that's how you wind up in the situation that we are in now. Not enough people have asked enough questions for the problems to get solved. They just accept things as they are. And they move forward. They get their dis- their distractions from media and from movies and TV and radio and what's the new pop song and what fashion <laughs> am I going to be wearing this week and what is this celebrity doing? Do you see this new movie? Oh, it's so good. I, I want to vomit. Most days, if I go into my job, it's a very small building. There's only about five employees in the entire place. <sighs> the distraction, the, the propaganda the way people are they're led away from trying to conceptualize the world that they live in it, it it becomes a do as you're told things will just be fine you'll figure it out but as material conditions continually decline more people are they're being forced to wake up they have to and I, I don't even really like to use the term wake up because obviously we're all conscious, we're all here, but it's it's it, it is it is in essence waking up. It's it's opening your eyes to an entirely new existence that has been under the surface of this veneer of corporate culture and capitalism and manufactured wants and interests. Like I need the next new thing, you know, it's not going to improve your life. Some widget, some piece of technology, it's not going to improve your life or, uh, necessary illusion. That's it. That's, that's (laughs) what this is all about. That's what this is all about. I want to quote one of my favorite philosophers, Immanuel Kant, one of the, maybe the greatest (laughs) ever, uh, and he had mentioned that he had read David Hume's uh, philosophy, and uh, I think he was like in his 40s or 50s later in life. So he didn't do a lot of his great works until a little bit later in life. You know, he wasn't an early bloomer with philosophy. I think he kind of struggled a little bit. Um, but he read David Hume and said, David Hume awoke him from his dogmatic slumber. And that's the way I felt starting to read some of this Enlightenment philosophy, um, getting into it uh, with maybe Chomsky and getting radicalized. I was kind of just going about life, maybe sleepwalking a little bit, unaware. Uh, The necessary illusions were um, everywhere, and I think I probably bought into the corporate propaganda way more than I do now. I'm still trying to see through it, and it's not easy because it's everywhere. But I think a lot of people are in a state of dogmatic slumber, just going about their life, um, you know, worried about things that don't matter. Like the next, for example, the gender or race of the character in some Disney movie or cartoon, like who cares, Mm -hmm. you know, the celebrity culture. And I also think the same thing 
um, raising people to divine status, whether that's politicians or philosophers or whatever. You know, that's one thing I like about the science. Like, uh, and that's where we're going to maybe finish with some uh, universe stuff. Nobody would, no scientist or physicist would describe themselves as as Einsteinian, you know, but in terms of the humanities and political philosophy, we have people that are Marxist. And I don't like raising Marx to the divine status. And we've had uh, some great talks, a lot of Marxist uh, philosophical discussion today. I think Marx was great, but I think there's a lot of things that, you know, Marx didn't see today in the corporate power and control and the concentrated wealth that these insanely powerful transnationals have today. Uh, but I think he's definitely given us the blueprint, you know, uh, and it did a great job of describing uh, capitalism and uh, woke a lot of people up, you know, people that read Marx. Um, and I think there's a lot of great things that, uh, that he said, and a lot of, and I still read some of Marx. I'm reading it right now. Some of his philosophies, and they still play today for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I like the sciences. The, the thing that the sciences do that the humanities don't is they keep you honest, you know. And that's and I think studying um, science and physics and quantum physics, and that's that's the subject I'd like to finish with today. Really helps you um, understand maybe the political system. The economic system, these are all human creations, um, you know, basically um, created by the ruling elites. You know, the systems in place, the power systems in place to run our lives. And sure, they're complex and, and, the, and the world that we live in is complex. But I don't think they're anywhere near as complex as the universe, the, the science of physics, um, biology, um, chemistry, and certainly quantum physics. And I think I'd like to talk a little bit about quantum physics as it sounds like you've dabbled in it a little bit, as have I. My favorite quote about quantum physics is there's two types of people in the world. Those that don't understand quantum physics and those that haven't studied quantum physics just yet. So that's the way I feel about it. What about quantum physics? What don't you understand about it? Everything. <laughs> Every last thing. It <laughs> is too. the most... Oh it my is the God. most confusing and simultaneously uh intellectually uh what's the word stimulating i think it's stimulating the thing about quantum physics is i think a lot of the great philosophers descartes kind of started with the mind body problem and thought that you know reason a lot of these enlightenment uh, era philosophers said you know reason will be the guide for us we got to trust reason we got to trust our mind you know um i i am a thinking thing you know we, we must start there although we could be a brain in the bat in a vat right now there's no guarantees that i'm not uh some sneaky scientist and you're just a brain in a bat and i'm putting little chemicals on there and stimulating lobes of your brain and to think you're having a conversation with me even though i'm an illusion i'm not there um but the the thing about the yeah, the, the study of the, the quantum physics uh, is, is sometimes intuition, we have to leave our intuitions and, and common beliefs aside, you know, like how can a mm-hmm. wave, how can, it, how can it something be a wave and a particle at the same time? That doesn't make any sense. Right. How can... And how, and how can something that doesn't exist suddenly exist and then not exist again for fractions of milliseconds the, these things come into being and then are not. And it's... Do you know anything about the Schrodinger cat? Uh, I have a book on Schrodinger. I haven't read it quite yet. Yeah. I think he was, a, he was a leading quantum physics theorist and scientist. Uh, something about a cat being dead and alive at the same time and being dependent on the observer. Can you talk to that a little bit? 
so Schrodinger's cat is a very popular thought experiment. Was not actually done. No cats were harmed. Um, <laughs> but this this idea that the observation of something will, in essence, influence it, right? It'll influence right. it. Yeah, right, it'll influence it. And it's the same thing in science. It, we always have to take into effect. Like if you use a scale. If you use a scale and you have a bag of powder, uh, I'm not in you know insinuating anything by this. Wait a minute, here. Are you talking about some drug ring? <laughs> <laughs> but are you but moving, let's, are you moving? Are you narco trafficking to fund uh, some overthrow of a Latin American government right now? Are you are you with the CIA? <laughs> clearly, clearly, I of all people am with the CIA. Uh, I no, finally but, outed you. It only took a couple hours. Finally outed you. Uh, the feds already know who I am. Uh, they've, they've been here before. Uh, because I like to tweet, by the way. You talk about the dumbest thing ever. Just show up at my door on the day before Thanksgiving because I like to tweet. Anyway, so you've, you've, let's get back to the example here. Um, you've got a bag of, let's say it's flour. If you're going to measure a bag of flour, you put it on a scale. You have to have a bag to put the flour in. Because if you don't, then it's not going to be the same amount after you pull it out, or it's not going to be able to sit on the scale, depending on how much flour you're talking about. Now, to weigh it, you have to take into consideration the weight of the bag. That is, that is in essence, uh, an observer. The bag is the observer. It is the thing that can completely change the outcome of any given situation. I can tell you I gave you a pound of flour, but if the bag weighs a quarter of an ounce, then I didn't give you a pound of flour. I have to take into consideration the weight of the bag. This is true in any scientific measuring. That's why our scientific tools are not perfect, because in the measuring of anything, we have to take into account the tool that we're using to measure. It's why quantum mechanics is so difficult, because these things are so infinitesimally small. They are... Uh, in essence, like ghosts, it's so it's so difficult to even perceive them. Neutrinos, uh, quarks, and, and and the like are so. Are... Do you think these these particles are fundamental? Do you think that they are the building blocks of of reality? Can we even go smaller? Are are there are there things that are even smaller than the current building blocks of the study of quantum physics? Uh, so this you know is, what I mean? Like at some point, we have to stop going deeper and smaller right at some point because we don't even understand the quantum physics let alone the the macro stuff you know the the bigger stuff like the black holes even so uh yeah the, the universe is just it's just fascinating to me but do you think the study of quantum physics actually gets into the fundamental building blocks of the universe or is there something more something even deeper than that so it's the fundamental blocks that we are aware of that's that's how i feel that's how i feel too that we're currently aware of and maybe in a hundred years or 300 years, that'll all change. Who knows? And That's this is how science think. goes, right? Everything, yeah. everything, every hundred years or so, you can pretty much throw out all the old stuff. It's like, everything is in flux. Kind of like what Karl Marx said, <laughs> um, which is, which is really why I prescribe to the, to the, uh, uh, the ideology, if you will, is that it is constantly in flux. There have been developments, there have been marches forward and steps backwards, and uh, it takes experimentation. And 
just like uh, I, I would take a second here to kind of like plug some reading for some folks if they uh, have never done it before. Um, Marx, obviously, uh, seminal works, Capital, Volume One through Volume Eleven, D billion, uh, you know, ninety bajillion pages of. Uh, they are thick. Very... They are very thick. It's not like reading, <laughs> that's for sure. It's a whole bunch of pages about linens and how things get their value and where value derives from and all that stuff. But it is important knowledge to have. Um, and then moving forward through uh, angles and Marx working together on the manifesto, uh, the communist manifesto, uh, that I will tell you that is probably the one piece of literature that opened my eyes more than anything else. And it was because reading through it and drawing parallels to our current world and the things that were happening and realizing that it's been happening for so many decades simultaneously, and it's a continuing cycle, um, kind of like how the universe seems to be a continuing cycle of things. Uh, these ideologies are scientific. They're about the measurement of things and material reality and the things that we can comprehend and and really get our mind around um what we're of talking time about... what of time what of finite time <laughs> what of infinity what of eternity is the universe infinite is it finite will it be around forever will it end oh it'll be around forever for me uh i don't do i don't know what about do you mean by everybody that? else <laughs> So you'll so, just maybe be in a different form to do some materialism stuff. You'll just be a different collection of matter. Maybe your entropy will have changed, or I don't. I don't know if I, I even understand entropy that well. But basically, organized matter over time becomes less organized. I guess if I could define it, right? Things have a tendency to break apart, and uh, entropy wants things to get down to their most uh, basic energetic levels. Uh, We're all stardust, right? Systems. We all started out as stardust, right? Before we became yeah. the organized uh, blobs of matter that we are here sitting on this little podcast, right? Yeah, as far as as far as we're able to discern, that's absolutely correct. I mean, every every bit of iron in your blood, in your hemoglobin, all came from the center of a star. Uh, a star collapsed at one point, exploded, shot that crap out into the universe, and then it all coalesced. And now here I am. A, uh, an advanced primate sitting on a cell phone talking to somebody halfway across the country about yeah. uh, political systems. Yeah, yeah. So you think the you think the universe is infinite? You think it never changed? Einstein liked this idea that the, the universe was constant. Uh, it was always it was infinite. It would never it, it always existed, and it will never cease to exist. At least I think that's what he his thoughts were near the end. Uh, you say you think something similar? So my this is my personal belief. Um, and as with all beliefs, it is not based 100% on measurable things. Uh, it's just what you are, think at this current time. And right. that could change, right? Yeah, it absolutely could change. Information could come forward and change my mind tomorrow. I'm very scientific about a lot of the things in my life. And that's that's the reason why I am the way I am now. Um, but in, in my view, um, I believe that the existing universe itself that we have experienced all of the matter that we have been able to observe is finite it is finite but when when you talk about a universe a universe has to expand into something 
whether that's a still a part of that same universe, we don't know. So that could go on, in essence, forever. It's a question of scalability and the, the scalable nature of existence in general. When we talk about even atoms, what, we, what were considered the, the building block of life, we then discovered were, in essence, almost like small yeah, solar made systems. Made up of even smaller building blocks, right? The atoms we right. thought were the smallest things. So that's why I kind of ask you, are we just going to keep going smaller forever until until we get to when? When 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 will we know that uh, – I forget it's called something. Uh, there's a physics or a scientific term for it. But just to kind of just get, get deeper and smaller and smaller, is that – is that even going to be helpful for us to you know understand the universe and our reality? I think I think quantum physics is is uh, is confusing enough, let alone the study of the of the large scale things like quasars and magnetars and uh, just galaxies in general and, and how stars are made. I mean, the big and the small are very mysterious to us, and we probably will never have the answers for either, right? Yeah, I mean it's. <sighs> Can the, can the is the universe intelligible, and what is what is the limitations of human knowledge? Uh, I would say that there is no limitation to human knowledge. It is what we are willing to do. It is the willingness, and that plays back into. And I hate. Uh, I know we're talking about science, but I'm going to go back into the political thing for a minute. There, you're waving your you're waving your communist and Marxist <laughs> flags right now. You're getting ready. To, you're getting them out and waving them right now. <laughs> well, I will say that I am also waving the anarcho-communist flag at this point. Cool, man. Cool. Welcome to the team. Um, and that is, and I, I'm, I'm always an anarcho-communist in my heart and my soul. I know that that is achievable, but it, there are steps to get to that point. And the steps to get to that point are built off of a scientific model of how things work and how we can make them work to get to that point. That's I think, why I think science is a tool. It's it's not perfect, mm -hmm. but it's the best tool no. we have available right now. Right. I 100% agree with that. And that's why I like to tell every it's, anarchist. It's not I infallible. Have... Science is no. not infallible. Human no. intuition and, and knowledge is not infallible. We have, we have to work. We have to work hard to get to, to, to gain that knowledge and un that understanding. It's not easy. No, I, I, I totally agree with that. It is totally flawed science has done horrible things look no further than the nuclear bomb and uh yeah i i think most technology is neutral this depends on how it's used but i'm not sure i can think of any way that nuclear nuclear weapons are neutral i think they're they're a bad yeah. thing no matter what yeah there's there's no real real world uh necessity for that Maybe if we use them to divert a comet, you know, we don't want to blow up a comet because it's just like one large asteroid hitting us. Comet asteroid, I kind of get those things mixed up, but I guess the asteroid, yeah. if it enters our, our our space or whatever. But if we blow up an asteroid, instead of getting hit with one large, maybe Texas-sized asteroids that wiped out the dinosaurs, we'd get hit with a billion smaller ones that could probably do the same amount of damage. But I, I've read some right. stuff on this that if maybe we exploded one in the path of an asteroid potentially we could if it was far enough away we could divert it just a little bit so that billions of miles later it would miss earth so maybe that might be a positive way to use a nuclear weapon i guess would you agree uh in in essence yes i could see that that could be but then again that all comes down to 
how far are we able to see the effects of these things and measure them and able to predict it. Yeah, maybe and next time it comes around, it'll be a dead-on strike. You never know, right? Exactly. And that's that's exactly why when you talk about going down to those quantum scale and even further than that, it is important for us to continue in that pursuit of trying to learn the most elementary things that we can about the universe. Because if we don't, then we could miss something. And if we miss something, it could lead to our own demise. And we don't want that. Self-preservation is number one, right? What What about the... I, yeah, I want us to, human beings to be around for future generations for a long time. We need to come together to kind of, you know, resolve this environmental crisis or... We won't be we won't be here much longer, and the, and the, and the clock is ticking. I, I kind of want to get to what is what is the creation of the universe? Was the universe created from nothing? Did it just um, come into existence? What do you think about that? Do you believe in the Big Bang? Was there a time before the Big Bang? Uh, my personal feelings are that there is no nothing. There can be no nothing. Something always exists. Even the concept of zero is unintelligible. It is for for nothing to exist in a certain space is false. How about the concept of infinity? Is that intelligible to human beings? Um, the concept of infinity is something that we have used as a means of being able to comprehend uncomprehensible things. So infinity does have an end it has to it has to have an end all things that can be called things have a beginning and an end so as incomprehensible as it might be infinity has to have some sort of boundaries that exist within it or else everything is infinity what of the tools that we use to understand our reality in the universe, our senses and our, our brains, are there limitations with those tools? I mean, sometimes our senses deceive us, right? If, did you ever think that uh, something was there that wasn't, or you ever trip and fall uh, on something maybe you didn't see, or I, I, there's all kinds of examples where our senses, you know, can, can deceive us. So I guess, I think there's an infallibility with human intelligence in our senses. Do you think, what do you think of the tools that we use to understand our reality in their uh, fallibility? Oh, it's, it's absolute. There, there is never going to be a perfect measuring tool. There's only as best as we can do. And until we get to that, that very basic elementary measurement uh, and figure out what it is, we won't be able we won't ever be able to be infallible when it comes to uh, measurement or science or, or any of that. It, it seems, it seems futile when you put it that way, but at the same time, without the pursuit, what's the point? You you said that uh, the limitations are unlimited. There, there are no limitations on human intelligence. So do you think that we can ever understand the meaning of life, the purpose of life, how the universe was created, why the universe is, was created, and how it might end if it ever ends? Do you think those things can ever be understood by human beings? Uh, I, I don't think, think they it, can. I, I think a lot of these questions will never be understood by human beings because 
I do think that there's a limitation to our intelligence. There, I, it's I finite. Think, I, I think I think our intelligence. I think we have innate. So you you talked talked about the tabula rosa in our pre call before, but I don't think there's a tabula rosa. I think that we have innate tools, um, innate programming. It's in our genetics, just like human beings can't fly, and just like uh, lions don't swim like ducks, you know, just like I don't have six arms, I have four. I think the same goes for intelligence, the same goes for language. We have innate programming and genetics through evolution and hundreds and thousands of years of biological, millions, billions of years of biological, I don't know how long it goes back, but at least several million years of biological life on planet Earth. I think the planet Earth is like 4.5 billion years old or something like that. So at least millions and millions of generations of uh, evolution and biological life have gotten me to this organized biological creature, you know, but I think my limitations and my intellect and understanding is very finite. It's very limited and it's based on my innate programming um, and my genetics. Yes, but at the same time, human beings may not be able to biologically fly, but we were able to build an airplane. That's right. Um, Human beings don't have six legs, but we were able to build machinery to give give ourselves the ability to do those things. We can we, manipulate we have, our environment. We can manipulate the materialism around us. I guess I'm more of an idealist. More, you know, I'm more of an idealist for sure. I love neuroscience. I'm always in the brain. I'm always thinking about ideas. You're more of a materialist, it sounds like, and my philosophical influences are more idealism and, yeah, even utopia. What, what What's possible for, for human beings in society? I, I like to think about that and not oh, as much so, as... So allow me to branch that for you. Allow me to branch the two worlds for you. Um, Utopianism. What is it? It's a choice. (laughs) Sure. We have to organize together, though. It has to be, it has to be, there has to be a consciousness, a public consciousness. And Mm -hmm. I hope hope to to get a utopian society, or at least a better society than the one we have today, we must work together. We all can't just, 8 billion of us can't do our own thing. You know, that's not going to be a very good world. So in some way, we must come together for a better society, for a better structure, for a better organized uh, existence. Um, And we must address climate change and nuclear war. Otherwise, those are both going to wipe us out. I I 100% agree with that. Um, But like I said, utopianism is a choice. Idealism, it's a choice. Are we able to do it? Yes, we absolutely can. We can do anything that we want to put our minds to. This it's is a great place of, to end. You know, the power, it's, it's, we have the power to act. We have the power to come together. We have the power to change the world for the better. Right? So we're, we're, this is a great discussion. Barry, Pale Horse, I really appreciate your time. Uh, tell us where we can find you if we want to get in contact. And maybe if you want to plug some things or tell us what you're working on, the stage is yours. Okay, um, you can find me on Twitter at the underscore pale underscore horse with a zero instead of the O. Uh, Somebody already had it, so I had to uh, compensate. Um, I'm working on some stuff, uh, some of it I I can't really talk about right now. Um, You can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on Blue Sky. Um, I, I don't do much on Blue Sky yet. Uh, it's 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 difficult as, you know, this isn't, this isn't a career choice for me right now. Uh, I'm I'm more just a an individual trying to do as much as I can to to get people together and and share these ideas and spread awareness and um, 
comprehension of ideas. Um, so yeah, find me, find me on Twitter, find me on blue sky. It's the same thing. Uh, the pale horse, just no underscores on blue sky. Um, other than that, uh, I have a sub stack I'm working on probably won't be up for another couple months because I want to have some, uh, material to put up there. Um, everything I do is free. I don't charge for anything ever. Um, intellectual labor is, uh, a good thing. It's a good thing. We should all be sharing ideas and time and all that without ever charging for it. Um, except to libertarians. Um, <laughs> you gotta get one more jab guys. at the libertarians, don't you? Always. Spike Cohen, I'm coming for you. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's 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 me in a nutshell. And if you see me uh, gallivanting across southeastern Pennsylvania, don't be afraid to come up and say hi. All right, my friend. It's been a pleasure. We'll have to uh, catch up again sometime. Thanks for your time. Uh, any Anytime. You just let me know. Thank you so much for having me. All right. We're out. Have a good one. Beautiful. And that's going to do it for this episode of Necessary Illusions. Thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank my special guest, Barry, a.k.a. The Pale Horse on Twitter. We had a wonderful discussion today. We have a lot in common and agree on quite a bit. We also disagreed on some things as well, so it's always great to have a dialectic discussion with someone with a different perspective and belief system. Again, thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC squared, no gods, no masters, I'm out. Thank you.